Welcome to Out of Gage. I'm Janet Nodar, Senior Editor for Breakbulk and Project Cargo with the Journal of Commerce. During the virtual 2021 Journal of Commerce Breakbulk and Project Cargo Conference, industry leaders shared their insights into what continues to be an unusually tumultuous market. Our speakers included shipper and supply chain executives with unmatched experience in this sector and subject matter experts discussing crucially important topics. This podcast series, Out of Gage, provides insights from key sessions and presentations from the 2021 conference. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our Q&A session on the Jones Act and its implications in particular for the coming boom in offshore wind energy construction. I'm speaking with Charlie Papavizas. He is a partner in the international law firm of Winston and Strawn and, is, and chairs that firm's maritime practice. He is considered a leading shipping lawyer and frequently speaks on the Jones Act and other maritime law topics. The Biden administration and a welter of other players have committed to some very ambitious targets for offshore wind energy construction in the US. The goal is to build 30 gigawatts by 2030 and to aim at 110 gigawatts by 2050. Um, these are hugely ambitious targets. In the whole world right now, there are only about 35 gigawatts installed in offshore wind energy. And in the US, the Jones Act will shape virtually every aspect of how these goals can be reached. So Charlie, my first question, uh, can you briskly define the Jones Act for our audience? Sure, what you say briskly, the, the, Jones, <laughs> Act, the Jones Act is a pretty confusing term actually because there's more than one law that restricts U.S. domestic commerce to U.S. flag vessels. There's a towing statute, a dredging statute, and pretty much people call all of that the Jones Act. That's true. You're moving passengers around, moving merchandise around. But in any event, the rule of thumb should be if it's in U.S. domestic commerce, you probably need a qualified U.S. flag vessel to do it. And you should be sure you don't before you use a foreign vessel. Okay. All right, so what does the Jones Act mean for carriers? How does it restrict the participation of non-US flag carriers, tug and barge operators, installation vessels, and so on? Yeah, it winds up being a complicated thing and, and it's an amazingly complicated, especially considering that when you, you actually look at the statute, it's one sentence long. The actual Jones Act on merchandise is one sentence long. And yet we started drilling offshore in the United States in the 1940s. And there are still issues regarding the application of the Jones Act on the outer continental shelf. It's an amazing level of complications can arise in, in the way the law applies to particular situations. And for example, it's pretty obvious that if you move something from Houston to Tampa, you need a US vessel. But if you move something offshore, What's a point in the United States can be a very controversial issue. And so you start out in Port Fushan and you wind up in the Gulf. Well, have you wound up at a point in the United States? That's a critical issue. So it's a, it's a, like I said, it, it impacts anything in domestic commerce. I mean, happy to address the wind part, you know, yes. in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you know, in offshore wind, what we know is we've learned from the oil and gas experience by and large. And what we know first is that you need transportation of merchandise or people to implicate the Jones Act. So for example, if you have a drilling vessel and it's sitting still and all it's doing is drilling, that can be done by a foreign vessel. 
same thing with an installation vessel on an offshore wind farm. If it's sitting still, it's not moving things around or people, then we know it can install a tower. Similarly, we know from the, the offshore oil and gas industry that pipe lay vessels, a vessel can lay pipe between a wellhead on the US OCS all the way into Houston, and that can be done by a foreign vessel. Same rule applies with a subsea electrical cable. That can be done by foreign vessels. The issues arise with regard to burial of pipe or cable, because then you have concerns about whether the dredging law applies. So th those are sort of some of the basic ideas. I mean, it gets way more complicated than what I've just described, but that's some of the basics. What about moving cargo, like from a port to the installation vessel? Like yeah. you, the cargo has been delivered to the port and then the cargo needs to go from the port to the installation site. What are the implications there? Yeah, as soon as an installation vessel anchors in some way or jacks up, if it does jack up, it's become a point in the United States. So everything that's delivered to it from a staging facility or terminal must come in a qualified Jones Act vessel. This shows you the advantage of building an installation vessel in the United States, because if it's built in the United States and it's Jones Act qualified, that installation vessel won't need these feeder vessels to, in effect, provide it components. It can go into the port. It can pick up transition pieces and nacelles and so on for one, two, three, five, maybe five or six towers, go out, install five or six towers, come back, do the same thing all over again, versus staying offshore and having a Jones Act feeder system of barges or lift boats or something, bring those things out to it. In other words, you can do with one vessel what you might need multiple vessels for. Oh, that's an important point. Okay, and I understand there's at least one U.S. Jones Act installation vessel under well, construction only, now. Yeah, under when construction. you say at least one, there is only one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, it's, a, it's going to be a very expensive proposition for Dominion Energy, which has announced the construction of one. And, and it's, we don't know whether, since you can do this with a foreign installation vessel, with this feeder vessel workaround, mm -hmm. and the expertise, at least at the moment, still resides abroad, in terms of installing these towers, you have to expect that for the foreseeable future is going to be foreign installation vessels. Okay. All right. So how does the Jones Act shape decision making when it comes to improving port and terminal infrastructure, manufacturing and so on? Does it have an effect in, in those elements? Well, it does because as in the example I just gave, if you have an installation vessel that you're hoping to go to a terminal to pick up tower components, mm -hmm. you have to worry about bridge height you have to worry about depth of water because you're talking about a massive vessel. So one of the ironies is that you actually have more flexibility potentially with the regard of locating terminals and staging facilities if you're using a tug and barge concept because then you really don't worry as much, depending on, by the way, on whether the components are put on the barge standing upright or laying down, mm -hmm. there's advantages to each. That makes a big difference with bridge height. In other words, in New York, you have the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. They're planning to put an O&M facility in Brooklyn. That's perfectly fine because you're talking about vessels that are not going to have a height limit. But if you've tried to do an installation vessel going into the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, you might have issues. The legs of the vessel, any upright tower component, all these things create height. Okay, so many niceties or of the transport envelope, so to speak, have to be considered. 
Absolutely. And look, the industry's already gotten very sophisticated and these things are all being taken into account. But at the same time, you have the power purchase part of this equation comes from the states. And the states would like staging facilities to be in their state. They don't want to purchase power offshore and then have the staging facility be in some other state. So, for example, New Bedford in Massachusetts has positioned itself to be a staging facility for a long time and has done a lot of work in that direction. But it also is behind a hurricane gate, which has a certain Mm -hmm. limit in terms of the width of a vessel. So those things have to be all factored in. Okay. All right. For EPCs and equipment manufacturers that want to participate, what are some what are the Jones Act implications that they need to understand? Well, I mean, you have to remember the Jones Act only applies to vessel movements, vessel transportation of things. So every aspect of a wind farm can be foreign manufactured. Where the impingement will come will not be via the Jones Act. It will come via domestic content requirements Uh imposed by the states. The states would obviously like everything to be produced in their state, but I think every northeastern state is practical enough to know that that's certainly not possible on day one. And then they're all angling for what they can get done. Equinor has announced that it's going to produce its foundations, for example, way up the Hudson River in Albany because they're going to be gravity-based concrete foundations. Uh Those sorts of things will happen in the states little by little. Turbine manufacturer, blade manufacturer, transition piece manufacturer. It'll be interesting to see how that all shapes out, whether they come from Europe, whether they come from the Gulf. They come from the Gulf, obviously. Again, you have a Jones Act implication just by virtue of transporting them. Okay. Yeah, lots to think about. Okay, my my last question for you, kind of a big picture question. What what has to happen before U.S. offshore wind can actually reach these ambitious goals, 30 gigawatts by 2030, 110 gigawatts by 2050? What has to happen? Well, the simple answer is lots and lots and lots of things have to happen. I've said for years at conferences, that the happy circumstance may arise in a few years where we're short of everything. We're short of steel, we're short of trained people, we're short of vessels, we're short of turbines, we're short of blades, we're short of everything. It's not clear that the worldwide manufacturing capacity is oriented towards every country doing what the United States is planning to do. We're not the only place in the world that's designed an ambitious offshore wind program, Taiwan, Europe has done enormous amount so far, and they they want to do a lot more. In fact, I was at a conference where people were talking about taking down five megawatt towers and putting up 12 megawatt towers in their place. Because because just in terms of space. So look, lots of things have to happen. There's enormous energy and interest behind this. I mean, I have every confidence that it'll get done, but it'll it'll be an interesting ride for sure. It will be an interesting ride. Charlie, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with me about this today. Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today for Out of Gage. I hope to see you in New Orleans next April 25th through 27th at the 2022 Break Bulk and Project Cargo Conference.